You're listening to the weekly podcast from Solid Ground Church. We hope that this is uplifting and encourages you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. If we can be of any help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now let's get to this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Church Online. Uh, before we get going too far, let me, let me just say something. Do um, you ever have a week where uh, you think you know how your week is going to go, and then things unfold, and not so much. You ever have one of those where you're just like, okay, I'm pretty sure I've got the, the week mapped out, but right now, uh, no. And then you kind of find yourself going, man, I was dead wrong. Where it, it, it turns out, okay, like, I, I thought things were going to go this way. Um, that's where we are as a, a church right now. So uh, you're kind of curious, okay, like, why are the doors closed? Why, why have things gone uh, so quickly back to online uh, without, without, uh, you know, breaking confidentiality. Let me just tell you, um, we have right now, here, here's what's going on. This is why we're not doing in-person Sunday morning. Uh, be, because number one, um, uh, most of our worship band right now is in quarantine. Uh, our, our worship leader, Keith, um, has injured his wrist and so he can't play the guitar right now. And I'm actually in quarantine too. You're not allowed to be in the room with me because of a potential COVID uh, outbreak. Now, again, if you got our email earlier in the week, we told you, listen, didn't happen. It's Sunday morning church. You're fine. You don't need to worry from our end. But, you know, we decided to err on the side of caution and uh, close the doors as COVID cases in Delaware uh, arise. And man, it just, it just reminded me, like, I, I was already planning on doing a series called Dead Wrong. I didn't know that this was going to happen. I would just ask you, uh, if, if Solid Ground Your Church be lifting us up in prayer right now, even if it's not, I mean, lift us up in, in prayer uh, as we're trying to navigate these weird waters. Um, but man, it's, it's, it's a crazy thing, right? Because there are times where we think we know what we're going to do and then not so much. And, and sometimes, you know, like, it, it's not just like life plan things. Sometimes, like, we, we, we think we know facts. We think we know, like, things are going to be a certain way, and that's not the case either. I'll, I'll give you an example. So, a bunch of years ago, I, I was talking with a friend of mine, and we were talking about the song, Play That Funky Music, White Boy. You know the song, Play That Funky Music by, by the band called Wild Cherry? You know the song, right? Play That Funky. I, I don't need to sing it. You know it, right? And so, I was just, I was, I was getting my jam on. I was going, play that funky music. Anyway, that music, white boy. Right, and um, my friend stopped me, and he just goes, "Hold on, dude, you're, you're saying the lyrics wrong." I said, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, it's not play that funky music, white boy. It's play that funky music, right boy." Now, before you freak out in Google, let me just tell you, I did the homework. No, it's absolutely play that funky music, white boy. And so, like, like, like he had been going his entire life thinking it, the the lyric was something else. It turns out he was dead wrong. And I'm just bringing this up because sometimes, like, you know, listen, and also just that's a, a rare Pastor Burt victory story right there where I was right about something with that. But sometimes it's like we just go through life and we think that we know how things are and we are dead wrong. And as we go into this brand new series, just a, just a two-week series before uh, we get into Advent, we're going back into the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, open up to John 7. That's where we're going to be today. Um, John 7. Uh, and we're going to look at some people over the next couple weeks who thought they knew who Jesus was, they thought they knew, like, his identity and, and everything about him, and it turns out they were dead wrong. 
Now, to, to, again, we're going to be in John 7. To understand John 7, before we go there, I'm going to just sort of bring up a little bit of background on the, on the text that we're reading. So at this point in Jesus' life, what's been going on is uh, he's been teaching, he's been doing miracles, and, uh, and, and it's so fairly early in his ministry. And one of the things that happens, like background that's not in the Gospel of John, it's in another Gospel, is you find out how Jesus' family is reacting to him teaching and preaching. And, and the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark who uh, was a disciple of Peter, a lot of people believe that Mark uh, is Peter's recollection of the events of Jesus' life. Mark gives us this, this little snapshot into what happens when Jesus begins his ministry, how his family reacts to it. And so you find in, math, or in Mark uh, 3.14, it says this. It says, uh, and he, talking about Jesus, appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. And, and let's just pause on this word for a second right here, okay? Um, he says, us, we hear the word apostle, and we think a very religious word. We hear like, you know, like sort of like a prophet or a teacher. But something to know uh, back in the first century is that the, the word apostle, it didn't begin with Christianity. In fact, way back in the ancient Greek world, this was a word, it comes from the Greek word apostolos, and it literally just means sent ones. And there were, there were not Christian apostles. Here, here's who apostles were. Apostles were people that basically, like, when you had a king uh, you know, like, like who, who wanted to instill culture, so, like, you know, think, like, Alexander the Great or the Romans, okay, whenever they would take over a province um, and they would take over a place that wasn't necessarily Greek, what they wanted to do was conform it to their kingdom's culture. And so, like, think about it, if you've ever heard, maybe remember in history class, there's this thing called Hellenization, right? Where, where the ancient Greeks, they went out and they tried to make the territories that they conquered feel Greek. And so they instituted the Greek alphabet, they instituted Greek culture. And what the king would do is he would send these people out called apostles or apostolos, meaning sent ones. And what they would do is they would go into a territory and it was their job to make it so that if the king went there, it felt like home, that it felt Greek, that it felt like the, the kingdom that he was ruling. It was all about them changing a culture and representing the word of the king. And so when you find uh, Jesus doing this thing where he says, listen, I'm sending out apostles, basically what he's, he's already just beginning to, to represent his own kingship. And he's sending men out to basically, listen, like make the world the way I want the world to be. He's training these guys, raising them up, saying, listen, I'm the king and you're going to make things the way I want them to to be and say, he takes these 12 guys, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, Thaddeus, Simon, James, and Judas. Okay, so this is what he does. But here's the crazy part, all right? Jesus's family, remember, Jesus raised a carpenter, raised, like, not royal at all. Like, they hear this and they're like, he's crazy. So here's what happens in Mark 3.20, it says this. Okay, so then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even, so Jesus starts to teach and preach, and there's so many people showing up at the house that, like, they, have, like they can't even get a moment's peace. And it says this, and uh, verse 21, and when his family uh, heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind, right? <laughs> I love this. They're, like, they're going, listen, like, Jesus, are, are you nuts, are you nuts, okay? Like, and so they actually, like, they hear that he's, he, like, you know, he's getting a following and he's actually calling people apostles. And like, are you crazy? And so there, you reach this point in the story where his, his mother and his brothers show up and what they're trying to do is get him to rein it in, get out of this teaching spotlight. And so people actually go to Jesus, like, because like, his mother and his brothers, they show up in the crowd 
And they, and they come, and so people coming to Jesus, they're like, hey, your mother and brothers are here. And Jesus goes, well, who are my mother and brothers? And he points at the people who are listening to him, his disciples. And he goes, these are my, bro- my mother, you know, my sisters, my brothers. This is my family now. Now, let, now just think about something. Um, you think that stung a little bit if you were from Jesus' earthly family? I mean, you think, listen, if, um, if you've gone through life with Jesus in your house, you've played together as kids, you know, if you're his mom, you, you watch him grow up, you think that stung when he suddenly went, actually, no, they're not my family. This is my family. I mean, that, that would hurt. And that's actually the background, like historically, going into what we're about to read in John 7. And so, Here's what happens in John 7, starting in verse 2. It says this. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And we'll get into what that was next week. All right, verse 3. It says, so his brothers, talking about Jesus' brothers, said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For, he says, no one works in secret. Let's go back. All right. For no one works in secret. There we go. If he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And basically, what, here's what we're finding, okay? Like, just historically speaking, all right? Um, and and I, I just think that this is just telling of the authenticity of the Gospels. Think about it. If you've ever had a family member who sort of, like, becomes like a black sheep, right? Who starts to do things in life that your family or you disapprove of, right? How do the family typically respond? It usually goes something like this, okay? There's usually a confrontation at first. At first, it's like a, what are you doing? Are you nuts? But then what happens? Well, I'll tell you what happens. People start to turn passive-aggressive because they decide, like, why waste my breath? And they begin to take, like, sarcastic jabs. That's how it works. Oh, that's so-and-so. You know, oh, don't they do this, right? And that's exactly what we see going on right here with Jesus, that basically you have his brothers, and at first it's like they were trying to seize him and take a hold of him, but now they're just like, well, listen, you've got disciples. You should probably go uh, do things in the open because you're, you're a king after all, right? And, and this is what John 7, 5 says about that type of attitude. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. Not even the guys who saw him go through life, who, who, who never saw him sin, who never saw him uh, do anything wrong. Yet these guys even don't believe in him. You know what's crazy to me about this moment? What's crazy about me is that, or not me, maybe. What's crazy to me about this moment is that at this point, Jesus is already doing miracles. Like at this point, um, he, he, he's, he's healed a guy who's been, who's been lame for, for almost 40 years. And, and, and he's, he's done this miraculous feast where he's fed 5,000 plus people. He's even walked on water. And, and, and word travels quick. It's not like his family doesn't know that he's doing this stuff. But the crazy part is this. The crazy part is that for whatever reason, they see all this, and that's not enough to convince them about Jesus's Kingship. Maybe they go, he's a prophet or something. Or maybe they just go, hey, Jesus is doing a nice little magic trick. I don't know. But we have this telling thing that at the end of the day, not even his own brothers believed in him. And if I could just for a moment say this um, to those of you who, uh, maybe where you are in life is you have family members who don't share your faith. You've got loved ones who, maybe what they do is, is they mock you for following Jesus, or you get the same passive-aggressive jabs, you know. Uh, you, you get together, and they're like, oh, I guess we better pray because so-and-so is here, you know. I, I just want you to take a little bit of comfort knowing that you're in good company. Now that, listen, if they mocked your Lord, they will mock you too. 
if Jesus' family didn't value his Messiahship, you shouldn't expect that yours will value your faith, that they don't share it. And know that, here's, here's why I'm bringing this up also, not, not to take shots at anybody's family, but just for you to know that, listen, Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows the hurt. He knows the embarrassment. He knows the awkward conversations. He knows the, the invites that don't come and the passive-aggressive jabs. Like, he knows about it too. And I would just tell you, listen, if that's where you are, just cast those cares on the Lord. So the Lord, you identify with what I'm going through, and I'm asking you to help me in this moment. And the crazy part is this, by the way. Um, crazy part is even though Jesus' brothers don't believe in him, he doesn't exactly help the situation. Like going for so there's like, like John points out, his own brothers didn't believe in him. And look at what verse 6 says. What verse 6 says is this. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. So listen, you guys, you want me to go down to this festival? Let me tell you, I don't go anywhere that my father, my heavenly father, uh, doesn't tell me to go. And so listen, I'm not going anywhere. He goes, now for you guys, listen, your time is always here. I mean, you can do whatever you want. Here's what he says, uh, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. In other words, in other words, guys, the world doesn't hate you because you're evil like the world. <laughs> but, but it hates me because I'm saying the truth. Now think about the slam in that. Think about, I mean, like, my gosh, that basically Jesus is going like, I'm the good guy. You're not. You do whatever you want because I'm walking perfectly in the will of God, but you are. Like, you think that'll create some tension. But here's the thing. Jesus' story doesn't end there. In, in the remainder of our time together, I want you to know what happened with his brothers. Even though they see Jesus in his earthly ministry, they don't believe in him at all. How many of you know that, listen, it's an old adage, but it's true. If you're not dead, God's not done. And sometimes God redeems things that you just wouldn't believe he would or could, things that you've stopped praying for, people you've stopped praying for. In our time, what I'd like us to do is focus on Jesus' uh, brother James who's here, um, who I believe actually probably is the one who says the thing about, like, don't hide yourself. Because if you read James's writings, you find that James is a really sarcastic guy. And the interesting thing is this, you know, Jesus' life, he goes forward and he does more miracles. And he keeps asserting that he's a king. And the thing you have to understand is that the people who loved Jesus, his earthly family, they knew how dangerous that was. Because listen, when Jesus says that he's the Lord, he lets people call him Lord. When Jesus says he's sending out apostles, it's an affront to Caesar and the Romans, the occupying political power who are oppressing his family, oppressing his friends, who are ruling on them with an iron thumb. The Romans who are professional killers, who are professional people who, listen, like they flex their arm and they kill people just to make points. And so you've got Jesus, and he goes into Jerusalem, all the while letting people worship him and, and bow down with palm tree, you know, your palm branches, you know, and, and like proclaiming Hosanna, like, Lord, save us, save us, save us. And Jesus accepts all of it. In fact, he encourages it. And you got to think, man, what's his family thinking when he does this? The, the worry, they've got to know that, that he's taking his own life in his hands. I mean, to, to, to go forward and say, listen, like, no, the, I, I'm more king than Caesar. I'm more king than the Romans. That's only going to end one way. That's only going to end with the, with the Romans killing you or your own people killing you. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus goes forward and he's crucified. 
which from the Roman means is a, is a, 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 a particularly excruciating death that's reserved for the worst criminals. It's humiliating. The person is stripped naked. They're nailed to a cross. They slowly suffocate or suffer from blood poisoning, and, and their cross is put on the side of a road for passerbyers to see. They are, their execution is made as a political point. It's humiliating. And Jesus' entire family is humiliated by his death. His entire family is heartbroken by it. And yet, you got to imagine, man, if you're James, seeing it, knowing that it's coming, I told him, I knew this. I knew it was going to happen. What were you thinking? Why would you ever do that? And here's James, and, and he's gone like, I, he tried to rein him in. He tried to get him to not say this crazy stuff, and that didn't work. So he, just, he, he never let his disdain for what Jesus was doing be secret. I mean, he's taking these passive-aggressive, sarcastic jabs all the time. And now it turns out that he was true, that Jesus was wrong. He was dead wrong. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the king. He was just another guy. Why? Because if you're killed by the Romans, it means the Romans are greater than you. It means you're not the king that you said that you were. But the story doesn't end there. There's this book, this little snapshot into the early church written within a lifetime of the people who saw the events of Jesus' life. It's called First uh, Corinthians. It's this little like a letter to an early church. And in it, the, the writer is reflecting on the faith that, that he instilled in, his, in the congregation that he started, the Corinthian church. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Because here's the thing, I'm... From the beginning, the belief has always been the reason Jesus died was because he died in our place. He died to make us right with God, that, that the wrath of God was due on us because we've all sinned against God. Jesus took our place and took the wrath on himself freely for us. That's what he's getting at. Like Christ died in, for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that this was prophesied about for years and years beforehand. And then it's, he continues, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised, on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In, in other words, that, listen, Jesus really died in a body. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, a new, like, like stepping into the new creation, a redeemed body, like the first fruits that basically this testimony, listen, God has actually blessed Jesus, that everything that he did was within the plan of God, that no one took his life from him. And he remained faithful to God until the end. And this is the promise. Listen, like, as the tomb is empty, so we have the promise of new life ourselves, that one day God will give us new life. And that all of us can begin new lives right here in Christ because he's died for our sins. But it doesn't stop there. He, like, he's just recounting. He goes, what else happened? He says, well, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is, uh, it's Peter. It's another name for Peter. Um, then to the 12. It's okay, listen, Jesus died, right? He rose from the dead, and he appeared to Peter, but not just the 12. Here's what it also says. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So there's 500 people together, and Jesus just shows up. And I was like, whoa, most of whom are still alive. Like, guys, this is basically what the, the author is saying. Like, fact check me. You know the area. Go talk to some of them, all right? 
though some have fallen asleep. So some have died, but most of them are still alive. But look at this last part. And he says this. Then he appeared to James. James. Then to the apostles. Then Jesus appeared to his brother. Can you imagine that conversation? Can you imagine the, the, the grief with your brother being killed? Can you imagine at the same time, though? Here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is now something is going to change. Um, that's the thing that makes James a believer. Not the miracles that Jesus did before the crucifixion. It's the resurrection. Um, and you might go, why is that, why is that the thing? Well, look, Andy Stanley says this all the time. He says, listen, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God. Like, for those of you who have siblings, you know, like, it would take a lot. And, 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 and this is such a testimony. And I think it just testifies to the power of the resurrection. Like, the Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on so many things that we think it does. It doesn't rise and fall uh, on the Bible. It doesn't rise and fall on Christians not being hypocrites. It rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the thing that makes James a believer. Okay, like, even though he saw the miracles, he goes, okay, like, other, like, there could be, like, it could be a trick or whatever, but listen, I know the Romans, and I know what happens to people who get killed by the Romans, because the Romans, listen, here's the deal with the Romans, okay? If you're a Roman centurion, and you're charged with killing somebody, and you fail at that, your life is on the chopping block. And so you've got to listen, like, James saw Jesus die. He, he saw the body go in the tomb, and yet days later, however long it is after, like, that, that event, Jesus is alive again, and he's talking to James. And we don't know what that conversation was like. Maybe it was something about, hey, I know you didn't believe, but I'm welcoming you into something new. Maybe it was something about calling. Maybe it was something about taking care of the family. I'm, I'm not sure. But whatever it was, it's life-changing for James. Because from here out, you find James's and Jesus' brothers are completely different. The same family that tried to rein Jesus in and, and stop him from teaching and preaching. Look at this. Like Jesus, you know, he rises from the dead. He appears to his disciples, and he tells them, listen, stay in the city of Jerusalem until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And while they're waiting there, while they're praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit, here's actually a detail that Luke records in Acts 1.14. It says, all these were in, or with one accord, uh, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And his brothers. We find Jesus' brothers, the very ones who didn't believe in him. Suddenly, they're there and they're praying with everybody else because suddenly everything has changed because of the resurrection. And in all that, listen, James is filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, just like everyone else. And the crazy part is this. As he's there in the early church, even though he wasn't a disciple of Jesus, even though he didn't walk the countryside and, 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 you know, lay hands on the sick and cast out demons like the other disciples did when Jesus was in his earthly ministry. He's all in. And people start to take notice of him. They start to realize, like, man, this, like, James, he's, he's a smart guy. He's, he's very rational. He's very wise. And he actually becomes a leader in the early church. And he actually gets this nickname. He's, he's called James the Just. And they call him that because they listen, his wisdom is so valuable. Like you can bring a problem to James and he's going to come up with a just solution to it. He's going to be somebody who's going to discern things really well and come up with a right course of 
action. So he becomes a leader in the early church and not just a leader, a leader's leader. Like apostles start reporting to him. And, and here's what we find, like, as James is beginning to lead in the early church, not the only one, he's there with Peter and John, okay, but while that's going on, like, like, the early church begins to spread like wildfire. James, a guy who tried to stop Jesus from teaching anybody, now he's witnessing and helping grow this movement that testifies not just to Jesus' teachings, but to the fact that his brother died for his sin and rose from the dead. And that was not without opponents. There were people who were incredibly threatened by that, who thought, man, this is, is you know, if you're Jewish, this is an attack on, on, on the validity of our faith and the authenticity of it. And so there were people who tried to stop this movement completely. One of them was a guy named Saul, who was a Pharisee, belonging to the religious party that had pushed so hard for Jesus to be killed. So what Saul does is he tries, to, he tries to put out this movement. He has Jesus' followers imprisoned and killed. He does everything that he can to squash it until one day he's on this road to Damascus and the risen Jesus appears to him and he says, listen, you've got it all wrong. And Saul, he changes his name to Paul and, 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 and he begins to rethink his entire life. And so he goes into isolation and, and sometime after he converts his own recollection of what he did to learn about who Jesus was comes in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 18, where he says this. Then after three years, this is, this is Paul writing, I went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas. Again, that's Peter. and remained with him 15 days. But look at this next part. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James. I mean... What kind of clout does someone have to have that if, if there's a brand new Christian who wants to learn about who Jesus is, that the only two people he goes to are Peter and James? Man. And I love this, that basically you find James being willing just to take this guy under his wing and tell him everything that he could, because James understood too. James understood what it was like to have the complete wrong idea about who Jesus was. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. You find this movement begins now that now that now that Paul's in it, he begins to, and he says, "Listen, like what we should do is we should take this 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 good news about Jesus and we should take it to everybody that we possibly can." And so he decides, "Listen, okay, like you've got these other apostles, okay? And now James, by the way, we just saw here James is listed as an apostle. I mean, what? Like like James, the one who when he's so offended that his brother would call people that now he's listed among it." Okay, and now you've got Paul over here. He goes, listen, like you guys focus on reaching our Jewish brothers and sisters. I'm going to the rest of the world. I'm going to go get Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And so like the gospel goes out from, from Judea and people who aren't Jewish begin to convert. People like most of us. Now there's just controversy, you see, because up until now, Christianity has been this inherently Jewish thing. But now you've got all these people who want to believe in Jesus, but... They're not Jewish, and they have no idea what it, like, what it means to follow things like the Jewish law, to be kosher, to, to follow these 600-plus commands in the Old Testament. And, 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 and should they even be required to do such things? Or, or were those things for people who were Jewish to mark them as a special people, but now there's something else? And so this big controversy arises in the early church. 
And the question comes up, what should we expect Gentile Christians to do? Can they eat pork? Can they, can, can they uh, you know, <laughs> can they have different dietary things? Do they have to have tassels on their clothes? I mean, like, what should we expect from them? There's this big argument that takes place. And so what happens is there's this big council in Jerusalem of the first church leaders who get together to decide what are we going to expect from Gentiles? And at the front of that council sits James the Just. Somebody that they know, listen, if James weighs in on it, it's going to be really good. So James hears the arguments from Paul, and he hears the arguments from other Pharisees who have converted, who think that Gentiles should keep Jewish law. And I think James, who understood what it was like to walk in darkness, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, goes, you know what? We should never let that happen to anyone ever again. And so this is what he says in the face of that in Acts 15, 19. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, in other words, um, guys, we can't expect them to keep our law when at the end of the day, what should happen is, is let's just do everything that we can to keep them from being hindered. James, who understood what it was like to not walk with God. And how many of us have benefited from that? Like how many of us, like, the reason, like, this movement picked up so much steam and went global to those of us who aren't Jewish. Now, I think primarily, most Christians aren't Jewish of descent. It was because there was a guy named James who, who with other leaders, followed the leading of the Holy Spirit and decided us and do whatever we can to bring them in, not push them out. So they cut all kinds of things, things that, that were part of their heritage, things that, that would be insulting to their family. They knew, that, listen, okay, if we're going to expect Jesus followers to, to not follow the Jewish law, well, that's going to put them on the outs with all their Jewish friends and family members. But they did it anyway. They were sacrificial in that regard. And it came from the wisdom and discretion of James the Just, Jesus' brother. And you know what's interesting? That's a nickname that other people gave him. But if you were to ask James, hey, I mean, I'm just curious, what do you think about yourself? I mean, you're in the lineage of Jesus' family. You're, you're somebody who clearly, like, you've got an in. And that's, by the way, that's, that's interesting to me that even though Jesus is, or that James is technically Jesus' brother, he never leverages that. He never goes, listen, like, you guys should listen to me because I'm Jesus' brother. In fact, he's completely humble about the entire thing. Like, if you were to ask James, hey, who are you? What, like, what should I think about you? Like, like, how would you even sign a letter? He never lists himself as James the Apostle or James the, the one who, who did this. Like, James had a really, really simple, grounded, sobering view of himself. And when you read the book of James, written by him in the New Testament, this is what it says about who, like how James viewed himself. This is his signature. He said, James, servant of God. And, other, and look at this word, Lord Jesus Christ. Hold on this for just a second here. James, a servant. Hey, guys, who, who am I? I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant. Like, first and foremost, like, who I'm about in life is serving the one true God. And 
of the Lord. And remember, okay, that's offensive. Why? Because Caesar is Lord. This is a thing that, okay, Jesus' family wanted him to not say about himself. But now here's James standing on the other side of Jesus' resurrection, and he goes, yeah, that's true. That's true. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this word right here, um, I think it's important for us to remember that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's not like, it's not like, okay, like, so James Christ is, well, that's not what it means, okay? Like, what Christ means is it's, it's a term for the special king of God. Like, this word, comes, like, what it references is this guy, like, prophesied about in the Old Testament called the Messiah, this one who, like, one day God would send a king who would reign perfectly his will on the earth. It was somebody who would come from the line of David. It was somebody who would, like, set creation right. Like, that's who the Christ is. And so you find James. And he goes, man, if you're curious about who my brother was and is, he's the Christ. He's the Christ. He's the, he really is the king. I, you know, I, I didn't think that he was. I didn't realize. Like, I, you know, I grew up with him. I don't know why I was walking in darkness, but, but no, actually he is. And James gets nothing for this. He doesn't get prestige. He doesn't get honor. Remember, like, it'd be easy for us to be like, you know, like well, if, like, you know, I'll become a Christian and, and maybe that'll like, make people like me or whatever. You got to remember, when the church is birthed onto the scene, you lose everything from being a Christian. You lose heritage, you lose possessions, you, lose, you could lose your life. And yet James, he's so convicted by something that he goes like, yeah, he's the Christ. He's the Christ. And James adjusts. He, he goes on. And his later years, they're not recorded in the Bible, but church history has enough accounts that we can kind of piece it together what happened with him. Turns out that, that James, his heart never stopped beating for his Jewish brothers and sisters, that he could kind of see himself in them. You know, that like, okay, he grew up around Jesus but didn't recognize Jesus. And so what he would do is almost daily he would go to the temple in Jerusalem and he would be there by himself. He would just get on his hands and knees, and he would pray. And those who overheard him knew that what he was praying for was for them to believe in Jesus. And, and, and tradition tells us that, man, James did this so much, he actually developed calluses on his knees. He was on that hard ground that much praying for his countrymen, praying for his, his, his family, that they would come to believe in Jesus, that they would come out of the darkness that he was at once in himself, and he never stopped in it. And tradition tells us this, this story comes up first from uh, Flavius Josephus, who puts the, the date of these next events around 62 AD. It's testified to you by the early Christian historian Eusebius and others. That James, his reputation was really a good one, that he was known for being a wise man, grounded, thoughtful. And one day while he's there in Jerusalem, and he's praying for his people again. Some prominent Jewish men hear him, and they go, hey, what is this all about? Like, what is it that you believe? Tell us about this Jesus who was crucified that you keep testifying to. And so James does. And there are religious leaders who overhear what he's doing, and they can't stand it. And so they take James, and they take him up to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, like the, the, the highest point on it, it's about 450 feet off the ground. 
It's the very spot where if you read, read the Gospels, you know there's a point where when Jesus is tempted by Satan, Satan actually takes him up there and tells him, listen, throw yourself down if you're the son of God. You know, And I, I got to believe that when James was up there, like he had that story flashing in his head. He had the story of his brother's temptation there. And now here he was being tempted to maintain his life. And how many times had Jesus now told him that story of, listen, like, this is what I went through. And, and, and now here, here's James in the very spot where Jesus was tempted. And they've got him there high up. And they give him a chance to renounce his faith. But James stays faithful to Jesus. And so they throw him off the pinnacle, 450 feet up. And he hits the ground. And his body breaks. But he doesn't die. James takes what little strength that he has left to get into a posture of prayer. And he again begins to pray for his Jewish brothers and sisters who are there killing him that they would be forgiven by God for what they were doing. And isn't it kind of a funny thing that many of us, um, when we're convicted by somebody, when somebody sort of like shines a light on the wrong things that we've done, our response isn't usually to celebrate them. It just incenses us more, right? Like somebody makes you feel bad about you, you're not like, well, thank you for pointing that out. No, like, like you just get angrier at them. This is what happens, okay? Like there's some people who hear him and, and they feel remorse, but a lot of them, they just go, ah, and so they grab rocks. And here's James, even though he's just been thrown off this height, they start throwing rocks at him. And now that like, the crowd divides, there are some who are like, stop, he's praying for us. And other people who are just angry, they keep throwing these rocks, but he doesn't die from that. As his body's being beaten with these stones. So finally a guy comes up, and, and he takes this large staff that they used to use for like beating out dirty laundry in the, in the first century. And they take this large staff, and he chucks it at James's head. And that blow kills him. The just breathes his last all the while praying for the forgiveness of those who murdered him. And as you think back on that, and you look at the course of, of James's life, this guy who, who grew up around Jesus, who was dead wrong, who's confronted by the risen Jesus, who, who takes this belief to the point of death, who loses everything for it, it kind of makes you ask a simple question. Here's what it is. What kind of faith motivates that kind of action? I mean, really. Like, what, what kind of belief set? What do you have to see to make you go, I will do this to my dying breath. What kind of faith motivates that kind of forgiveness? That you go, listen, okay, like you can take my life, but listen, I'm going to pray for mercy for you. What do you believe about the other side that does that? And the answer is really simple. You believe that you were walking in darkness and God in his mercy shined a light. Your brother died for your sin in your place to make you right with God. And that he rose from the dead. And the crazy part is um, 
we can hear this story and go, well, yeah, but you know what? James could have kept that to himself. I mean, look. Did Jesus do that? Sure. But why, why would he give up everything for that? And the answer is really, really simple, you guys. Like, when we talk about being sacrificial in your faith, here's why. Because Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Let's evaluate James's life if he never receives his Messiah's or his brother's lordship. At this point in history, he'd still be dead. Right? I mean, like, like if James never chose to follow Jesus, he like as we're talking right now, he would not be around. On top of that, James's name would be lost to history. He would have nothing uh, worth mentioning. But he found something better. He found life. He found forgiveness for his sin. He found redemption from death. And he found hope that will last forever. And today as we wrap up, I want to just give you an opportunity. If where you are is you would go, okay, you know what? I've been walking in darkness. You know, okay, I've been doing things my own way, but I recognize right now that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. And I want to begin a life with him. I want to give you an opportunity to. Here's the good news. Um, you can't earn it. James didn't earn it. It's free. All you have to do is ask. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be Save today if you'd like to begin a relationship with jesus church online if that's where you are you click that i commit my life to jesus button right now in our online campus otherwise wherever you are i want you just to pray with me right now and let's invite him to be the lord of our lives so every head bowed every eye closed let's pray together and here's what we're going to pray as we begin to start a new relationship with jesus we're going to pray heavenly father thank you for loving me god i confess that i've gotten it wrong there have been things I've been dead wrong about. I've lived for myself. I've lived for other people, but I haven't lived for you. And I'm sorry. But I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. And that you raised him from the dead. So that I can be forgiven. And have new life with you. So Lord, I'm asking you. Please take my life into your hands. Show me how to live from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Lead me now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. We're really uh, honored that you would choose to do that. Bless you. Have a great week. And we'll see you next Sunday for part two of Dead Wrong. But online, don't come here. <laughs> Bye.